Exodus chapter 8 is where we're going to be, picking up and and continuing through the the book of Exodus. We're continuing through this series that we started two weeks ago, this series that we're calling Awe. Remember, we started that as we started to approach the ten plagues, the ten signs and wonders that God pours out upon Egypt to reveal himself, to bring judgment upon the Egyptians, and to eventually set up the redemption for his people. And I just want you to know, it's not an accident that we've been right here in the book of Exodus. We started this book right after the first of the year. So it's amazing that the Lord knows right where we're going to be at. And I bring that up because I think some of you are are connecting the dots. It's been crazy to see all the things that are going around in our world. And then to be right here anchored in the book of Exodus talking about these signs and these wonders that show us the awe that God is worthy, that God is due. And so I love that. I just wanted to just to think about some of these things. Last week, we, we started talking about just the signs of the times. We opened up with Matthew 24, and we, we opened up about Jesus answering the questions that he begins when it comes to the signs of the end of the age. Remember, his disciples asked him, Jesus, what's it going to be like before you come back? What's, what's things going to look like? And remember, Jesus gave us five things. He said, there's going to be religious deception. He says, take heed, let no one deceive you. He said, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Kingdoms going to rise against kingdom. Nations going to rise against nation. Those first two we're, we're very well acquainted with. But then he says, there's going to be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes. And we talk about those five signs. Again, read Matthew 24. You'll see them right there. But what's amazing is we're seeing some of these things right here in our day and age. We're seeing, we're, we're right now in a shelter in place in the state of California, soon to spread to all the 50 states. And it's because there's a pestilence. There's a global virus that is affecting everybody and changing our ways of life. It's changing the patterns that we, that we function in. But I want you to know that's just one thing. In East Africa right now, in South Asia, you're seeing swarms of locusts, billions of locusts in these huge swarms. Swarms so large, they haven't seen swarms this big in two and a half decades. And they're devouring all the vegetation in their way. When there's no vegetation and there's no crops, you know what that leads to? A shortage of food or a famine. Right? We have pestilence, famines. This week alone, we have two over 5.0 earthquakes. In our country alone, there's been other, other earthquakes in Croatia and Greece, right? Earthquakes, we're seeing these signs. We're just looking around. Church, you know I'm not a hypester. I'm not someone that's tried to get you amped up because I think Jesus is coming soon, right? I haven't, for four years I've been with you and I haven't been that way. But I'm, I'm that way now because I'm seeing some of these things going, church, this is what our Bibles say. This is the stuff we claim to believe, And he tells us beforehand that this stuff is going to take place. So I'm just telling you, as I'm doing myself, we should be looking to the Lord now in a greater urgency and a focus than we ever have in our entire lifetimes. And that goes, if you're 75 or older, or you're 10 years or younger, that goes for all of us. We have not seen something like this in our lifetimes. But there's all these pieces that are coming to place and we're saying, Jesus, you told us beforehand, you are Lord, I'm not going to fear, I'm going to put my faith in you, and I'm going to trust you as I walk by faith, step by step, to whatever comes, I know my end is going to be in the presence of you for all of eternity. But this is where our faith, the rubber meets the road. 
So I just want to open up with that and remind you of that and also say this is going to segue beautiful into the text that we're talking about this morning. Because when we start talking about some of the uncertainties and some of the things that are swirling around us, it brings me right back to what the children of Israel would have been feeling in Egypt while they're there in Goshen seeing all these things unravel in front of them as well. So the best way for us as Christians to cope effectively with all these different things that are going on around us, it's to look to the God of the Bible. It's to look to his living and active holy word that has been written and recorded, preserved for us. Seeing who he is, seeing how his people responded to the same types of things that we're experiencing right now. We can derive great strength from that stuff. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So know that as we walk by faith and not by sight, through every season, Jesus is our surety in the midst of uncertainty. You're a note taker, write that down. Jesus is our surety in the midst of all uncertainty. He's the unchanging one. He's the rock of ages. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So as we get back to the book of Exodus, we're in week three of our series called Awe. In week one, we talked about awe defined. Awe in the sense of a reverential respect mixed with fear and wonder. And we talked about how God is awe. Of, of the one who is worthy of most awe, the one who should conjure up thoughts of reverential respect, fear, and wonder. God does it the most, right? He's the culmination of all things awe. God is awe-defined, right? He's the greater than everything else in this world. And then last week, we talked about awe-demonstrated. We started to see what God does to reveal himself through these signs and wonders. He strikes the Nile River and turns it to blood, And that is going to bring everything in Egypt to a screeching halt that's going to get everybody's attention, shutting down the lifeblood, the lifeline in Egypt. It gets everybody's attention. And it's very similar to what we're seeing here, right? God is getting our attention as he's brought things in our world to a screeching halt. But it's it's awe-demonstrated. It's the capacity of what God has the ability to do because he is the great I Am. So awe demonstrated. We saw the Nile struck with blood. We saw frogs jumping all over Pharaoh, all over Egypt. Frogs with no end in sight. And that has led us now to what we're going to be talking about this morning. After defining awe and demonstrating awe, it's time for God to leave no question left by declaring that he is the source of all awe. This is awe declared. This is God very very clearly saying, I don't want anybody to guess. This is me. This is my doing. This is who I am and what I'm capable of. So that's where we're at here in the text. Let's get back to it. Picking up where we left off, Exodus chapter 8, verse 16 says this. So the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so, for Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth and it became lice on man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not... So there were lice on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard as he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. 
So check this out, church. Here's plague number three. And there's several things I want to point out here about what we're talking about. First, I want you to see that plague number three comes without warning. Notice that nowhere in the text does it tell us, God said to Moses and Aaron, go back to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go so they can serve me or else. Right? That's not there. That doesn't happen. There's no warning for Pharaoh beforehand. And there's several reasons why. There's several possibilities. Maybe it's because Pharaoh has just seen firsthand the power of God demonstrated. We know Pharaoh has seen it. We know Pharaoh recognized it, acknowledged it, even responded to it in, in a sense, the right way because he calls Moses and Aaron to himself and says, pray for me. Pray for me so God would take away the frogs. And then remember, Pharaoh says, and I'll let the people go. I'll obey. And then he reneges on the situation and he ends up not doing what he said he was going to do. So perhaps that's God saying, all right, no warning this next time. And this plague of lice or gnats is going to come upon them suddenly, unexpectedly, without warning. Now I want to bring this up. It may kind of seem just like a subtle thing to you, but I think it's important. And I think, I, I think it's important to note here because in some regards, this coronavirus or, or earthquakes or locusts or famines, they're a warning. And in some regards, they're a warning that has come maybe unexpectedly. But I want you to think they haven't come without warning. We've already had plenty of warnings. And so has Pharaoh in this situation. And so I want you to understand that. It's not that God owes Pharaoh another warning. Right? Do we understand that? It's not that God owes us another warning. He's already warned us. In fact, any time he's ever warned us at all, it's been out of his grace in accordance with his loving kindness, his mercy to tell us. Because he doesn't need to do that. He's not bound to give us a warning. Right? He already has sent his son. He's already sent prophets. We have his warnings written down for us in this book. We have them, Right? So it's not like God has to announce to us, hey, calamity's coming. He already has, which means this. In our current situation that we're at now, it is God's grace and his mercy and his loving kindness, the fact that he still loves us here in this world. There are still people here that he wants to see get saved, put their faith in Jesus, be forgiven, be accepted, be called the beloved. Or he wouldn't have given us this current season as a warning Jesus would just come back right here, right now. And when Jesus comes back, it's over. Judgment begins. There's no more chance to repent. So I want you to see that. Although this may came, have come without warning, this is the warning. And this may be the last warning, friends. This may be the last season as some of these things are coming into place. Don't put off for tomorrow what can be done today. Today is the day of salvation. Right? If God is calling your heart and is drawing your heart and you're at that place, today is the day of salvation. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. Be forgiven. He died in your place. He rose from the dead. Let him be Lord of all. That's what's going on here. So no warning for Pharaoh in this third plague. God simply says to Moses and Aaron, stretch out your rod, strike the dust, strike the earth so that lice or gnats, your translation may see, are going to come and it does. So God demonstrating his power, his supremacy over all the false gods in Egypt, over creation itself. 
to strike the land of Egypt is to strike those, those, those false gods, their ideas that there was some other being that was able to protect the land. This is showing them there is no one greater than the Lord God himself because they can't prevent what is coming here. And so we're seeing him tear some of those things down. So lice, gnats go everywhere. They're on man and on beast, on the people and the animals everywhere. Now, Bible scholars, they say, well, what were they? What were these insects? And again, my Bible, the New King James Version says lice. The ESV and I think the NIV, some of those say gnats. And so you're thinking, well, what are they? Are they lice or are they gnats? And some of you are thinking as you scratch your head every single time I say lice, lice. I wish we were together so I could see somebody scratching their head right now. So I hope they were gnats. Well, you know, in the Hebrew, it literally means a small stinging or biting insect, which means it could have been lice or it could have been a form of a gnat, could have been a mosquito, could have been a sand flea, could have been a flea. There's a whole lot of variations that it could have been. But a small, tiny, biting insect. If your Bible says gnats, I want, you, I want you to know it's not like the gnats we're used to that are just kind of bothersome and you kind of swat away. These are landing on you and biting and stinging, right? L- more like lice really is what they're doing here. And they're, they're very, very bothersome. But that's, that's interesting, right? On man and in beasts. And remember, all this happens without warning. There is numerous as the dust on the ground. So what does Pharaoh do? Well, the first thing he does, as we've seen him do before, is he calls for the wise men. He calls for the magicians to work their enchantments. And I want you to picture this. These guys, these are Pharaoh's spiritual leaders. These wise men, these enchanters, these magicians, these are the spiritual leaders. These are the best and the brightest. They're the priests. They're Pharaoh's right-hand men. Now, these priests, these spiritual leaders, they would have bathed religiously. They would have shaved all the hair off of their bodies every single day. They didn't want anything to touch them because it could have corrupted them. So they show up to to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's summoned them. And I just picture the look of defeat on their faces. They show up to Pharaoh and Pharaoh's able to take one look at them and see that they're powerless over this plague that has just afflicted them. Why are they powerless? Because they have these lice gnats all over them too. Right? They're on man and beast. Pharaoh's like, I don't even need to ask you guys if you can help me. You can't even help yourself, right? You can't even keep the fly, the the lice gnats off of yourself because this is greater than they are. And so they're going to say, they're going to make this declaration. Notice this comes from these spiritual leaders, from these who worship all these false gods. This is the last thing they would ever want to say. This is the last thing that Pharaoh would have ever wanted to hear them say. They say, Pharaoh, this here, what is happening in Egypt now, this is the finger of God. This is an act of God, Pharaoh. This is an act that is greater than anything we've ever seen. It's greater than any power we have ever wielded. This is an act of God. And I want you just to feel the power of that, knowing that this is coming from a source as a testimony that they would have never wanted to admit this if they had any other logical explanation to avoid making this statement, church, you can be convinced they would have. It is that serious. It is that clear. There is no other explanation. This is the finger of God, an act of God, something done by creator God, something that only creator God can do. Now, if we want to get technical here, and we do, because it's for the glory of God, we need to understand this. 
what God does here, this divine miracle, this is a direct act of God's intervention. But I want to I want to say it this way. This is the finger of God overruling the very creation he created as a display of his glory. Did you catch that? Maybe maybe you did, maybe you didn't. I'm going to explain it another way if you didn't. But what does that mean? It means that creation, the world that we live in right now, it's bound by laws of creation. But I want you to understand God himself, the creator, is not bound by the laws that are beneath him, his creation. I want you to think about this. God is the author, not the subject, right? God is the author, not the book, right? He's not bound in a book. He's the author. He's outside of the book. So what he's doing here is he's actually reversing the natural order of creation here in Egypt by doing this miracle. Now, how does he do that or why does he do that? Well, remember we've been talking about God is refuting, overruling, defeating all the other things that are worshipped in Egypt. And the, the main one here is Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh was believed to be a god in Egypt. Pharaoh was worshipped as a god in Egypt. Now, he was raised that way. He was told that since he was youth. All the Egyptians were told that. So if we cut him a tiny little break, it's that. He didn't know any better. But it was supposed to be Pharaoh's job to maintain cosmic harmony. It was supposed to be Pharaoh's job to bring security and stability and order. And I'm here to tell you that was foolish from the start because no human being has the power to do that. Aren't we seeing that in our culture today? No human being, no person, no president, no ruler, no dictator, no human being has the power to hold things in in order, in harmony. That is only something the Lord of all creation can do. God is able to hold all things together by the power of his word. Only he can do that. But he's reversing this natural order in this way. In the world that we live in, in the culture that we live in, everything trends to dust, right? Yes, we were created from dust once, but now in our world, everything trends to dust. And I'm speaking our physical bodies, Christians, when we die... We will be with the Lord. Absence from the body is the presence of the Lord. Our soul, our mind, our will and emotions, our spirit, that which has been born again to commune with God. When we die, we depart these bodies and we are in the presence of the Lord for all of eternity. But this body, it's going to return back to dust, right? That's the, that's the trajectory. That's the way this creation works. But when God does this, he's going to strike the dust, that which is dust, and he's going to bring life back out of it. He's going to reverse the natural order of creation to bring these lice gnats out of the dust. That's why they say, this is the finger of God. We can't explain this. We can't bring life from dust, but God has. And this is the second time he's done it, church, right? We, from, from dust, we've come. That was an act of creation as the Lord took from the dust and he formed it in his hands and he breathed the life into our nostrils. This is creator God doing something. And I bring this up because I want us to understand the magnitude of what is being declared here. This is God's awe. When we talk about this, we say only God can do this. And that's exactly what everybody in Egypt was saying. This is the finger of God. Only God can do this. When we realize the magnitude of what the Bible is testifying to, we silence our mouths. And we say, God, you are awesome. You are so holy. You are so lofty. You are so grand. You are so awesome adjective after awesome adjective. I'm speechless to describe the magnitude of how awesome our God and King is. 
So as he builds those things up, that's what's happening. Or this is awe declared. Now, after all of this, is this going to grab Pharaoh's attention? Is he going to say, oh, I need to submit. I need to repent to the Lord. I wish he did. But he doesn't. Verse 19 says that he hardened his heart. Number five, it's the fifth time if you've been counting. Pharaoh's heart grew hard. And he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. So unfortunately, no. Verse 20 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, on your people, and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. And in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. So after the third plague of lice, gnats, that that plague came without warning. Plague number four now is going to come with a warning again. God is going to send Moses and Pharaoh back to the water where they're going to find Pharaoh. We talked about that last week about how this practice was a religious thing, worshiping the God of the Nile. Isn't that something else, right? The Nile has just been turned to blood. The Nile has just been shown to be a lesser than God, than the Lord God of all creation. Yet here's Pharaoh going right back to the habitual practice of worshiping something that has been created. If the Lord decides to tarry, I hope the things that we've seen be shaken in our world right now, I hope we don't ever go back to worship them because they've been shaken. They're shakeable. The Lord isn't. The Lord has remained. But here's Pharaoh. Here's, here's human beings going back to the situation that they were found before even after it's been proven to be false. But here's Pharaoh. And the Lord's going to send Moses and Aaron there saying, tell Pharaoh this. Tell him, let my people go so that they may serve me. Notice God's terms have not changed. Same terms. Let my people go so they may serve me. His terms are not going to change. But here in his grace, out of his mercy, because God is loving, even loving Pharaoh, he warns, warns him again. He says, or else, if you don't let my people go, I'm going to send a fourth plague down upon you. I'm going to send swarms of flies upon you and your servants. The, the houses of the Egyptians are going to be full of flies. The ground covered with flies. Everywhere you step, flies, flies everywhere. Now, I don't know how it is for you, but one fly is annoying. One fly in my house, and I become the great fly hunter, and I've got my fishing pole fly rod that's got enough torque to really get some whip in it, and I'm going to chase that thing around until it's eliminated. Right? That's just one fly. 10 flies, I'm starting to lose my mind. 50 flies, I'm out of there. Game over. I can't function in that fly-infested place. That's just 50, right? I think you're probably able to relate to that. But think about how much more so if they're huge swarms, full of swarms. Verse 24 says they're thick with flies. That word thick, it comes with it the meaning of heavy. They're so heavy, they're a burden upon you everywhere. You're covered with flies, 
Now, when we see in other areas of our Bibles, we see that these flies have the capacity to also bite you. So kind of get out of your mind that typical housefly that is annoying, but it's not going to actually bite you. In Idaho, we have these things called horse flies. And they're, they're, they're big. They're like the size of a nickel. And they, when they land on you, they bite you. I, I, would, I would be more concerned about getting a horsefly bite when I was growing up than being stung by a bee because that horsefly bite would itch for weeks. I hated those things. But I'm not saying that's the same variety of flies here, but they're like that. Psalm 78, verses 43 through 45, this is speaking of that same t- time. It says, When he, God, worked his signs in Egypt and worked his wonders in the field of Zoan, he turned their rivers into blood and their streams that they could not drink. And it says, He sent swarms of flies among them, which devoured them. These flies are devouring the Egyptians. They're biting them. They're, they're, having, they're having a small meal off of the skin of these Egyptians. That would be miserable. This is a plague that I wouldn't want any part of. It's bringing corruption to the land. They're literally feeling the weight and the burden of this judgment that God is bringing down upon them. I promise you, I guarantee you, God is getting their attention. He is declaring his awe before all those in Egypt. And this is another miracle that is foretold by God beforehand. A warning is given. It's disregarded. And then it comes to pass because the word of God never fails. It always comes to pass. Not a single thing the word has ever, the Lord has ever spoken has ever failed to come to pass. So he announces it, he tells them, and then it happens. And as we've been seeing in each of these plagues, we see those three things I want to keep repeating because I don't want us to lose sight of those things. We see, number one, God is showing his power. He's revealing himself. This here is odd declared. Look at the end of verse 22. This plague is in order that you may know that I am the Lord. Right? That's what he's doing. He's saying, I am declaring my glory to you. I'm showing you my awe. You are going to be without excuse. Right? That's number one. God is revealing himself in power. Number two, he is bringing judgment upon the Egyptians for the way they've afflicted his people. It is, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. I want you to hear that. Vengeance is mine. It belongs to the Lord. He doesn't say vengeance is yours. It's not ours, friends. It belongs to the Lord. And in his timing, he does repay justly and equally for what he deems the offense has been. So it's for God's glory to reveal himself. It's in judgment of the Egyptians and their gods. And number three, it's to set up an act of redemption, which we're going to talk about here in a minute. So another powerful example here. But if we're talking that second one, judging Egypt and their gods, I want you to hear this. There was a god in Egypt that was worshipped, and he was called Beelzebub. And the only reason I would waste your time by telling you a false god that gets worshipped in Egypt, if you notice I have not been doing that because it's a waste of time, but the only reason I do it now is because Beelzebub gets mentioned again in our New Testament. So I put the verses in your study guide for you to look at later. It's the Pharisees and the religious leaders who accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Remember, and Jesus says, well, that's ridiculous. Why would Satan be casting out Satan? Why would Satan cast out his own demons? And Jesus says first, not Abraham Lincoln, Jesus says first, the house divided against itself cannot stand. And then Jesus demonstrates that he has power over Satan because Jesus tells us Satan is behind Beelzebub. Paul tells us behind every idol 
is a demon, and behind every demon is Satan. That's how it works. Anything we worship that is an idol is a satanic means to try and distract us away from the one true God. That's what's going on in Egypt. But this Beelzebub was believed to be, listen to this, the Lord of the flies. Isn't that ironic? Beelzebub, the Lord of the flies or the ruler of demons. But what they, what they took that to believe is he has the power to protect Egypt from swarms like this, from swarms of flies, from natural disasters. And that's why God so specifically sends such heavy, thick swarms of flies to show Beelzebub can't protect you from anything. But he says, but I can. At the same time, God is saying, but I can. How is he saying that? Because the sending of these flies isn't even the most important part, the most impressive part of this fourth miracle. The most impressive part is how God makes a distinction causes a separation to show something on the outside that has already been declared on the inside. That his people are those Hebrews in Goshen, that area of Egypt. That's where the children of Israel are. And you're going to see there are going to be no flies in Goshen because God is going to separate them. He's going to make a distinction. And you Bible scholars, we're thinking end times and we're thinking the book of Daniel and we're thinking Revelation and we're thinking Matthew 24. Here's some food for thought. There's 10 plagues. The first three affect everybody. The last seven, the children of Israel, God's people are going to be set apart from. Think about what that means. If you're thinking Daniel's 70th week or you pre-trib rapture believers, think about what that looks like. We're seeing a picture of the way God brings judgment over a situation. That's a Bible study for another time, but I hope it's piquing some interest and I'm sure it has. And I would love to talk to you more about that on Zoom on Tuesday. But as we think about this, there's something so beautiful here. Look at what the Lord does. He sets apart the land of Goshen. He sets apart his people. He, he literally declares the very first no-fly zone in the world. And I love that, and that's a funny joke, and you should text me later that you laughed at that, but March has been trying to teach me some military vernacular. So I was thinking about no-fly zone. There's no flies there. It's a no-fly zone. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? But what is going on here, it's so good, church. Tune in for this. When Pharaoh tells, when God tells Pharaoh in verse 23, underline this, when he says, I will, this part, make a difference. When he says, I will make a difference, the word he uses for that phrase, make a difference. Listen, church, it's the word ransom. That one phrase, make a difference, is the one word ransom. What God is saying here is I'm going to set a ransom between my people and your people. Now, what is a ransom? A ransom is the price that needs to be paid in order for there to be redemption. If somebody has is, is been sold into slavery, if somebody has been taken captive, you need to pay a ransom. There's a price that needs to be paid to redeem them. So to pay the ransom price is called redemption. And that's what the Lord is saying. I am setting up right here, right now. I am setting a ransom up for you to see who my people are and who your people are. It's being completely clear, the people in Goshen are my people. Those are the people that I am going to ransom, I'm going to redeem, I'm going to set free. But think about what the Lord is saying. I'm drawing a line, making a distinction. 
whatever the cost, whatever the ransom price, it will get paid. My people will get redeemed. That is a promise that is prophetically spoken right here in plague number four, even though there's going to be more to come. Pharaoh's not going to engage with this, but we need to because that's exactly what God is setting up here. Now we're going to see later and we're going to talk in greater detail later. But that ransom price that has to be paid for the redemption of God's people is going to be determined by God to be a spotless, perfect lamb that is going to be shed for them to be passed over. That's the final thing that is going to be done. That's the ransom price. Just think about what God is doing here. This is what God is setting up. He's showing us that I'm going to set a ransom. I'm going to determine what the ransom price is. I'm going to make sure that price gets paid so my people get freed. It's beautiful and it's a picture that we're seeing as God declares his awe in this world for us, for his people, his great love. But connecting some of these dots and and letting this apply to some of us, this is exactly what God has done for us in Christ. This is exactly what what God has set up for all of us and for whosoever would call upon the name of Jesus. Jesus is our ransom. Jesus is our Passover lamb. So just like we're reading here, just like with Israel here in Goshen, God is saying in essence to the entire world, I'm setting a ransom. If you want to be my people, it's an open-ended question. It's still available to be answered by you today. If you want to be my people, if you want to be protected from these things to come, if you want to be with me, then Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is my ransom. Jesus is your redeemer. Jesus paid the price. He's the Lamb of God. That's this picture here in Exodus chapter 8, but really it's the picture that is from Genesis to Revelation. It's what God is setting up in this salvific language as he talks about what he's going to do. Jesus is our Passover lamb. He's our ransom. He paid the price. He did what we couldn't do. It's beautiful. So, so much going on, but I just want to tell you again, engage with that. If you're listening and you don't know the Lord, This is the opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. We are not promised tomorrow, none of us, and we really get that. That's becoming more and more clear. So engage with it today. You're hearing the way of salvation today. You're hearing the good news of Jesus Christ today. Engage with it. Say, yes, Lord, this is for me. I surrender my life to you. That's what we're talking about this morning. So even though this is of utmost importance here in the context of what's happening in Exodus, notice Pharaoh doesn't engage with it, but he will. So the fourth plague is going to come. Verse 24 says, And the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God in the land. And Moses said, It is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then will they not stone us? We will go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he will command us. This here, these verses here, this is my favorite part of the entire study. So please stay engaged, stay, stay focused here. We're, we're, we're getting close here, but these flies come and we've already established they're heavy and oppressive. Goshen has been spared from this, but Pharaoh's servants and the rest of Egypt, they can't take this for very long. And we would not survive under these these flies either. But Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron, and he says, check this out. He says, all right, go. 
He says, all right, I've had enough. Go. Go worship the Lord your God. Go offer sacrifices to him. But then he says, but stay in Egypt to do it. And I want you to catch that part. It sounds good at first. Go sacrifice. Go offer. Go it all. Sounds good. But I want you to notice he makes a counter offer by saying, but stay here in Egypt to do this. It's not an acceptance of God's terms, which means it's an offer to compromise. That's what Pharaoh just said. I want you to compromise what the Lord God had said, and I want you to stay here and do it. And I want you to understand this. In a biblical context, in us walking with Jesus, in us obeying what the word of God has to say, anything less is a compromise. And we understand a compromise is getting less than God's best. A spiritual compromise is getting less, settling for less than God's best. I want you to think about this. If Moses accepts these terms as, okay, we'll do it. We'll see some ramifications that may have come later. But I just want you to think what they have been given up. Christians, God has promised a complete deliverance from Egypt, a full pardon, a full redemption from Egypt. He's already set them apart. He's already said, I'm going to ransom them fully. But the enemy of our souls, Satan, the liar, the father of lies, he is just like Pharaoh in that he offers a counter offer with a compromise. God offers an abundant life. God offers eternal life. God offers words of life. And Satan says, well, well, that's good, but just stay here in bondage while you try to experience the blessing of those. Oh, that sounds great, but just stay here with me in love with the world, in bondage to your sin while you also try to believe all those things. That's a compromise. You can't. You can't live the abundant life and still be in bondage to Egypt. They can't. They're mutually exclusive. One has to give. One has to be true and the other has to be forsaken. That's what's going on. So he offers a compromise. And I want us to know that in the context of walking with the Lord, in the context of our walk with Jesus, anytime we compromise like this, that's a step backwards. That's moving away from God's will for his life. And it's subtle, right? It's kind of sneaky because it says, well, well, God does want us to worship him. And God does want us to offer sacrifices in his name. But God doesn't want us to remain in bondage in order to do it. The whole thing is to get them out of Egypt, to fully deliver them out of the place that they were only supposed to be temporarily. And that's an important thing for us. As some of the things around us kind of start to to be shaken, we're clinging to things that we never should have been clinging to, Christians. We're kind of too in love with this world. I know I have been. And so when things start to fall, I think, why am I holding on to that so tightly? God, thank you for showing me now that I'm holding on to things that I never should have been. You've called me to a higher place. You've called me to be longing for a place that has a maker and a builder and an unshakable foundation. You've called me heavenward to where I'm going to be with you forever. And so when these things start to falter, I don't want to be one kicking and screaming about temporary things falling away. I want to rejoice knowing that the day of my deliverance from all these things is drawing near. Right? I don't want to compromise, and that's exactly what's being prompted right here in this situation. That's the offer that's on the table for Moses. Just stay here. Just do what you want to do, but do it here. Do it here in Egypt. And as we apply these things to our life, I want us to know that this same offer to compromise comes against us every single day. As we see what the Bible has to say, we say things like this. I know what the Bible says. I know what the Bible so clearly says. 
but I'd rather do things my way. That's a compromise. I know what the word of God says. I know it says this. However, I want to just keep justifying me doing what I'm doing anyway. I know the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction of sin and judgment and righteousness because Jesus came and lived the perfect life and died in my place and rose from the grave, ascended to the right hand of the Father, sent the Holy Spirit to bring conviction, and and I'm sensing that, yet I would just rather follow Pharaoh's footsteps and harden my heart in order or instead of submitting my life to Jesus. That's compromise. All these different things. It's the idea of saying, I'm okay being in bondage and sin. I'm just going to tolerate it and allow it. I'm okay being in love with the world. I'm okay living a life in bondage in Egypt instead of the freedom that Jesus has died and set me free. And so my brothers and sisters, I want you to know this is for myself included. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Free. Which means that nothing should have the power to keep you in bondage any longer. No temptation is able to seize you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful to provide you a way out so you can stand under it if you're willing to walk out of Egypt. If you're willing to not accept the counter offer from the enemy and settle for less than God's best. That is flat out biblical truth and that is what is at stake right here. God's word is plain. It says what it says and means what it means. The plain thing is the main thing. We need to stop buying into the lie. Did God indeed say? That was Satan's first trick back in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say that? Looking at the context of Moses and Aaron here, think about this. Pharaoh comes back with a counteroffer and says, all right, go worship the Lord your God. Remember, he says, go. He leaves the go, but it's really not a go, right? But he says, go, go, but stay. Offer sacrifices right here in Egypt. Think about this. You could say, well, did God indeed say we can't offer sacrifices in Egypt? I mean, he didn't actually say that. Well, did God say that it would be a bad thing if we did, right? That's what happens. That's the end words. Did God indeed say? And here's the point. He didn't have to. Have you forgotten the oppression? Have you forgotten the bondage? You've forgotten that they're, they're killing you? Have they forgotten they're throwing your babies in the Nile River? Why would you even want to stay in Egypt for another second? Right? Why? Only if you're starting to believe the subtle lies from the enemy that there's something there for you. That's how serious we need to take this break away from these things that pull at us. That's what compromise wants to do in our hearts. But Christians, once again, the same truth applies to us. Jesus didn't come so we could have more fun living our life in compromise. Do you understand that? Jesus didn't come so we could make up our own rules and live life by our own standards. Jesus didn't come so we would feel right at home in Egypt, in this world, being partially obedient to his commands. That's a compromise. That is not why Jesus came. Jesus came to give us new life. Jesus came to bind the strong man and plunder his house. Jesus came to break the chains of all things that contend against us. Jesus came to set us free. If there's anything that is seeking to hold you captive right now, Jesus has the power to set you free. Listen, if you're stop willing, you're, 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 you're no longer willing to give that compromise any more of your attention. You're willing to break away and walk into the newness of life that he's promised you have in him. That's what's going on here. That's what's being set up. And so I love it because obedience to Jesus and his word is not just a good suggestion. It's a command. Be holy as I am holy. Deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. If you love me, you will obey my commands. 
It's a purpose of heart that is then fueled by all the power of life and godliness that is at our disposal in Christ to do what he's called us to do. Think about the power of that to do God's perfect will for our lives. He, he's come to be our redeemer. He's come to set us free. We have been in Christ set free from the penalty of sin. Jesus died the death we deserved. He's come to set us free from the power of sin. He's, he's greater. The greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. And eventually, probably very soon, it sure seems, he's come to set us free from the very presence of sin as we are going to be glorified with him forever. So take this serious. The time is now. The text is clear. We should be longing now more than ever for the place that God has for us. Let Jesus set you free. Now's a perfect time to make your stand. God's already done all the work for us and he's even done us some great favors by letting some of these things fall away. Press into him. Seek him. Find him. Experience that a taste is just not enough. Surrender your life to the Lord. Do what the Bible says. Read your Bibles. Obey. Submit to. I love that promise. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Love that order, right? Submit to God. Obey. Then resist. It's going to take some spiritual effort. It's going to take some physical getting out of Egypt. But the enemy will flee from you. That's a promise. So here we see Moses. He takes this counter offer and he gives a big old no deal. We're not going to stay in Egypt and sacrifice here. I love this. I circled it. Moses said, it is not right in verse 26. May that same spirit of conviction rise up in us anytime the enemy brings a compromise of, of staying in a place that we shouldn't be. It should rise. It is not right. That is not right. Why would I want to do that? It would be an abomination to stay in that place. That's what Moses says. Now he says it would be an abomination to the Egyptians because we'd be sacrificing animals to the Lord our God that they worship. We'd be sacrificing bulls and they worship them. So that would actually render them more mad at us and they would kill us for it, which may actually be Pharaoh's plan here to try and get them to sin against the Lord and have the Egyptians take them out. But Moses doesn't take the bait and simply says, no compromise. But then in verse 27, he quotes the Lord exactly and says, we will go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he will command us. He quotes the word of God exactly back to Pharaoh who's offering him the compromise. Do you remember how Jesus did that same exact thing on the Mount of Temptation when three different times Satan brings him the opportunity to compromise? And he brings the word of God. The word of God says, it is written, it is written, it is written. I'm going to stand upon the word of God. I'm not going to sin against the Lord. I'm not going to take the bait and compromise. I love that. I wish we were together and I could say amen. And I'd hear some amens because that's who we want to be standing firm upon the word of God. Moses does. So verse 28 says, so Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you shall not go very far away. Intercede for me. Then Moses said, indeed, I am going out from you and I will retreat, I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. But let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully anymore in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. 
And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. So Pharaoh comes back and says, fine, I'll let you go into the wilderness. Just intercede. Pray for me. And Moses says, okay, tomorrow I will. God will remove the flies tomorrow, but don't do deceitfully again. Don't change your mind again. Don't renege on our deal again. And yet that's exactly what Pharaoh does. But I want you to catch this part. God keeps up his end of the bargain. Moses keeps up his end of the bargain. Even probably, I mean, certainly God knew he was going to do that. And Moses probably knew because God told him, but they still do what they're called to do they still do what they tell god they're going to do i love that they let their yes be yes and their no be no even though pharaoh doesn't so moses prays and god in miraculous fashion takes away the flies as easily as he brought them not one fly remained in the land of egypt now we talk about these as the 10 plagues or the 10 signs and wonders but haven't you been counting there's a lot more than 10 because it's a miracle that god brings them and then it's a miracle that he takes them away. It's a miracle that he removes them. He, he's able to lift that judgment whenever he wants to. That's what God is able to do. God alone is able to do this as this just declares his awe. It declares his glory. But one more time, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. That's time number six that he's done that on his own, hardened his own heart at that time also and doesn't let the people go. So as we try to wind this down this morning, let's make some personal application to our own lives. As we look at this now, the second set of two plagues that we've looked at in consecutive Sundays, we've got another opportunity for God to declare himself to Pharaoh, for God to make himself known unmistakably that he's behind all of these things, that he's the one most worthy of our reverential respect, our fear and wonder that God alone is Lord. Pharaoh shows us something that may be happening in some of our hearts is certainly happening in a lot of the hearts around us. When God shows himself to be who he is, the only one worthy of worship, the only one who's truly worthy of awe, what we're seeing here is is he shows us that things get a little crazy and he starts to act a little frantic. And I want us to ask, these are the questions that are being answered, but these are the questions that are also being asked in our own lives. Questions like this, what is our source of equilibrium? In this time of, of, of our lives, in this current day and age today, What is needed in order to bring stability in your life? What is that that brings equilibrium? What is your security? Where is your hope and your peace? For Pharaoh, it seems like God is knocking them out one by one, yet he's still going back to the river, trying to worship something that has been proven. It's not able to do what he's hoping it is able to do. Right? No matter how much you believe in something, it doesn't make it true. Right? But something's true because something's true, right? God is faithful. God is, God is all in all. So he's shown himself to Pharaoh here, but everything that can be shaken seems to be shaking here in Egypt, and things also simultaneously seem to be shaking in our lives. Jobs are being shaken. Investments are being shaken. The earth is being shaken in earthquakes. Our, our leisure time, our social structure, some of the patterns of our lives, our pastimes, our hobbies, our sports, all those different things are being shaken. So I ask you, are those the things that we need to bring equilibrium to our lives? Are those the things that we need to bring security and stability towards our lives? I hope not, and I hope not because God's been showing you that over the past two weeks. I hope those are things that we can enjoy if the Lord allows it, but I hope those aren't the things that we put our hope in. 
Because in the day of disaster, when chaos reigns, haven't we seen none of those things can hold things together? I mean, my life better not be propped up, up, propped up upon any of those things because those pillars all just got knocked out, right? So it has to be something bigger. They never could have held me up. They never did. They were never able to. And in the same light that is being exposed in Egypt to Pharaoh, in all the Egyptians, all those false gods, all the false hope that they put in those false gods, the only thing true is that they've all been false, They've all been unable to hold up what they've needed to hold up. They've all been unable to do what they've hoped they were able to do. And so what about all of us? When our world gets turned upside down, our abilities, our possessions, our money, those things cannot save us. They never could have. They were never able to. But we don't want to worship those things. We want to worship the Lord our God. We want our faith to grow stronger in this time, in this season than it ever has before. And it kind of needs to by necessity. I want you to know that that's exactly who God is. That's exactly who he's declaring himself to be right here. We opened up our study saying we're looking at all these things and it's all kind of crazy, but we say, well, well, who is God? He's just declared his awe for us all to see. And we say, what are we supposed to do? How do the people of God respond? They cling to him with all that they have. They press into him with all that they have. They seek him and they find him. They plant their lives upon his truth. They embrace him. And that's what we want to do. That's what the scripture has to say. I want to share just a couple verses with you as we close. But look at this is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the Colossians. He's a prisoner in Rome as he rises. You think he's experiencing some world turbulence? Yes, he is. But he says this Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. He says, For by him, by God, all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. He says all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. This is where we get that verse. It says he holds all things together by the power of his word. He holds it all together. He always has, right? All those other things that have been going, they've never held it together. God always has. He's the one who we put our hope. He's the one that we put our trust. He's the one we seek and find, know, and trust. David says this, the last verse we'll look at this morning. David in Psalm 20, verse 7, David says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. I love that it comes from David, a man after God's own heart. A man who certainly saw his fair share of turbulence and some ups and downs. But he says, remember the Lord. That's our word today. Remember the Lord. Remember who he is. Remember what he's done. Remember what only he's capable of. Remember what he promises he will do. Remember that he alone has the words of life. Remember that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Remember that he holds all things together. He is able to hold us up in this season as we abide in him. We've never wanted to trust in chariots. We've never wanted to trust in horses. We've always wanted to trust in the Lord our God. And so Christians, in this time, trust the Lord. He is faithful. He is trustworthy. He has never failed. He will not fail today. Continue to press into him and abide in him and yield your life to him in every season.